This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. White Fang by Jack London Part 3, Chapter 3 Lip-Lip continued so to darken his days that White Fang became wickeder and more ferocious than it was his natural right to be. Savageness was part of his makeup, but the savageness thus developed exceeded his makeup. He acquired a reputation for wickedness among the man-animals themselves. Wherever there was trouble and uproar in the camp, fighting and squabbling, or their outcry of a squall over a bit of stolen meat, they were sure to find White Fang mixed up in it and usually at the bottom of it. They did not bother to look after the causes of his conduct. They saw only the effects, and the effects were bad. He was a sneak and a thief a mischief-maker, a fomenter of trouble, and irate squaws told him to his face, all the while he eyed them alert and ready to dodge any quick-flung missile, that he was a wolf and worthless and bound to come to an evil end. He found himself an outcast in the midst of the populous camp. All the young dogs followed Lip-Lip's lead. There was a difference between White Fang and them. Perhaps they sensed his wildwood breed and instinctively felt for him the enmity that the domestic dog feels for the wolf. But be that as he may, they joined with Lip-Lip in the persecution, and once declared against him, they found good reason to continue declared against him. One and all, from time to time, they felt his teeth, and to his credit he gave more than he received. Many of them he could whip in single fight, but single fight was denied him. The beginning of such a fight was a signal for all the young dogs in the camp to come running and pitch upon him. Out of this pack persecution he learned two important things how to take care of himself in a mass fight against him, and how, on a single dog, to inflict the greatest amount of damage in the briefest space of time. To keep one's feet in the midst of a hostile mass meant life, and this he learned well. He became cat-like in his ability to stay on his feet. Even grown dogs might hurtle him backwards or sideways with the impact of their heavy bodies, and backwards or sideways he would go in the air or sliding on the ground, but always with his legs under him and his feet downward to the mother earth. When dogs fight, there are usually preliminaries to the actual combat, snarlings and bristlings and stiff-legged struttings, but White Fang learned to omit these preliminaries. Delay meant the coming against him of all the young dogs. He must do his work quickly and get away, so he learned to give no warning of his intention. He rushed in and snapped and slashed on the instant without notice, before his foe could prepare to meet him. Thus he learned how to inflict quick and severe damage. Also, he learned the value of surprise. A dog taken off its guard, its shoulder slashed open or its ear ripped in ribbons before it knew what was happening, was a dog half-whipped. Furthermore, it was remarkably easy to overthrow a dog taken by surprise. While a dog thus overthrown invariably exposed for a moment the soft underside of its neck, the vulnerable point at which to strike for its life. White Fang knew this point. It was a knowledge bequeathed to him directly from the hunting generation of wolves. So it was that White Fang's method when he took the offensive was, first, to find a young dog alone, second, to surprise it and knock it off its feet, and third, to drive in with his teeth at the soft throat. Being but partly grown, his jaws had not yet become large enough nor strong enough to make his throat attack deadly, but many a young dog went around camp with a lacerated throat in token of White Fang's intention. And one day, catching one of his enemies alone on the edge of the woods, he managed, by repeatedly overthrowing him and attacking the throat, to cut the great vein and let out the life. There was a great row that night. He had been observed. 
The news had been carried to the dead dog's master. The squaws remembered all the instances of stolen meat, and Grey Beaver was beset by angry voices. But he resolutely held the door of his teepee, inside which he had placed the culprit, and refused to permit the vengeance for which his tribe's people clamored. White Fang became hated by man and dog. During this period of his development, he never knew a moment's security. The tooth of every dog was against him, the hand of every man. He was greeted with snarls by his kind, with curses and stones by his gods. He lived tensely. He was always keyed up, alert for attack, wary of being attacked, with an eye for sudden and unexpected missiles, prepared to act precipitately and coolly, to leap in with a flash of teeth or leap away with a menacing snarl. As for snarling, he could snarl more terribly than any dog, young or old, in the camp. The intent of the snarl is to warn or frighten, and judgment is required to know when it should be used. White Fang knew how to make it and when to make it. Into his snarl he incorporated all that was vicious, malignant, and horrible. With nose serrated by continuous spasms, hair bristling in recurrent waves, tongue whipping out like a red snake and whipping back again, ears flattened down, eyes gleaming hatred, lips wrinkled back and fangs exposed and dripping, he could compel a pause in the part of almost any assailant. A temporary pause, when taken off his guard, gave him the vital moment in which to think and determine his actions. But often a pause so gained lengthened out until it evolved into a complete cessation from the attack, and before more than one of the grown dogs, White Fang's snarl enabled him to beat an honorable retreat. An outcast himself from the pack of the park-grown dogs, his sanguinary methods and remarkable efficiency made the pack pay for its persecution of him. Not permitted himself to run with the pack, the curious state of affairs obtained that no member of the pack could run outside the pack. White Fang wouldn't permit it. What of his bushwhacking and waylaying tactics, the young dogs were afraid to run by themselves. With the exception of Lip Lip, they were compelled to hunch together for mutual protection against the terrible enemy they had made. A puppy alone by the riverbank meant a puppy dead, or a puppy that aroused the camp with its shrill pain and terror as it fled back from the wolf cub that had waylaid it. But White Fang's reprisals did not cease, even when the young dogs had learned thoroughly they must stay together. He attacked them when they were alone, and they attacked him when they were bunched. The sight of him was sufficient to start them rushing after him, at which times his swiftness usually carried him to safety. But woe the dog that outran his fellows in such pursuit. White Fang had learned to turn suddenly upon the pursuer that was ahead of the pack and thoroughly rip him up before the pack could arrive. This occurred with great frequency, for, once in full cry, the dogs were prone to forget themselves in the excitement of the chase, while White Fang never forgot himself. Stealing backwards glances as he ran, he was always ready to whirl around and down the overzealous pursuer that outran his fellows. Young dogs are bound to play, and out of the exigencies of the situation, they realized their play in this mimic warfare. Thus it was that the hunt of White Fang became their chief game, a deadly game, with all and at all times a serious game. He, on the other hand, being fast as footed, was unafraid to venture anywhere. During that period he waited vainly for his mother to come back, he led the pack many a wild chase through the adjacent woods. But the pack invariably lost him. Its noise and outcry warned him of its presence, while he ran alone, velvet-footed, silently, a moving shadow among the trees after the manner of his father and mother before him. 
Further, he was more directly connected with the wild than they, and he knew more of its secrets and stratagems. A favorite trick of his was to lose his trail in running water, and then lie quietly in a nearby thicket while their baffled cries arose around him. Hated by his kind and by mankind, indomitable, perpetually warred upon, and himself waging perpetual war, his development was rapid and one-sided. There was no soil for kindliness and affection to blossom in. Of such things he had not the faintest glimmering. The code he learned was to obey the strong and oppress the weak. Grey Beaver was a god and strong, therefore White Fang obeyed him. But the dog younger or smaller than himself was weak, a thing to be destroyed. His development was in the direction of power. In order to face the constant danger of hurt and even of destruction, his predatory and protective faculties were unduly developed. He became quicker of movement than the other dogs, swifter of foot, craftier, deadlier, more lithe, more lean with iron-like muscle and sinew, more enduring, more cruel, more ferocious, and more intelligent. He had to become all of these things, else he would not have held his own nor survived the hostile environment in which he found himself. End of Part 3, Chapter 3